I'd like you to think of a time, right? Can be from the past, can be from right now, here in the present. So a time where you found yourself at a crossroads in your life, right? An important juncture where you perhaps had a really important decision to make, right? And potentially you have a, a split, right? In the sense that there could be one decision that was a very risky choice, right? But one that you're certainly interested in and one that is perhaps a safer choice, right? The more rational choice, perhaps the more financially viable choice, right? So has everyone thought of that moment? Yes. I want to see several nods. It wasn't hard for people to come to that moment, right? Anyone need a bit more time? No? Okay, so hold on to that moment, right? Keep it, right? This is an image that we're going to be working on throughout the entire talk. Now start to ask yourself, what path did you take? Right? Why did you take that particular path? Right? How do you rationalize it to yourself? Right? How do you feel when you're brought back to that particular moment? Do you look back, perhaps with a sense of wonder and awe, how all the, the stars aligned? Right? That you were brought exactly to the place where you needed to be? Right? Or do you actually look back with a degree of sadness and regret? Right? And I'm sure we've all experienced that in our lives. Right? Were there missed opportunities? And I can share a personal experience from my own life. And that was the decision to become an academic and a teacher. Right? Very difficult decision. Why? Well, I just didn't want to do it. Number one, because my parents were teachers. Right? That's a big no-no. Right? If your parents do it, you don't do it. But I'm sure many of you have followed in the footsteps of your parents in some way, shape, or form. And number two, I just didn't want to do anything, right? I was too busy trying to become famous, as you do when you're between the ages of 16 to 24, right? With no power comes absolutely no responsibility. That sounded brilliant to me. So the plan was to go to university, right? I went to the University of Toronto, get my BA, get the piece of paper, get my parents off my back, right? Go enjoy my life. Um, and if I did need money, I was actually going to retrain to be a chef, right? So... There was my set goal, right? My set plan. Things start to shift in the first two years of university, right? So at the end of the first year, you know, I started to really enjoy it. I really got into the academic work, loved the environment. And I remember actually uh, having a, a session with my TA, not to discuss anything about history, but just to discuss, well, how do you know that you're supposed to be an academic, right? How do you begin to pursue that path? And he paused for a second, and then he said just very surely, um, and eloquently, he said, academia, sorry, you do not choose academia, academia chooses you, right? So you do not choose academia, academia chooses you. So those are very wise words. Um, second instance was just a moment of recognition, right? Someone just actually believing in you and, and giving you some encouragement to follow a certain path. So I was, uh, by the end of my second year, I had finished uh, a course with a professor called uh, 10 Days That Shook the World, PA 104. I saw this professor at the end of second year in his office. I knocked on the door. I asked him, do you remember me? And oddly enough, he said, yes, I do remember you. And I asked him, give me a job. Right? I almost demanded it, so give me a job. And he paused for a second and he said, right, you come to my office next Wednesday. Right? And there, I, you know, from that moment, I became the youngest research assistant in the history department. We're working on things together. And there comes a point where he's reviewing my work one day 
And just very flippantly, very nonchalantly, he said it as a matter of fact, if you don't do your PhD, what a waste that would be, right? So that just moment of recognition of someone saying, listen, you know, there's something you can do here. And that completely changed everything for me, right? So that brings me to this point, right? I'm on the precipice, right? I'm on the edge of something. A decision has to be made, right? What compels me to jump, right? And what I'm suggesting to you today, right, is an important part of the individuation process is to take that leap. And there's the crucial point, right? Making the decision to follow through on that point, right? To become an academic, to truly devote myself to my study meant sacrificing a lot of things. Sacrificing time with friends, right? A very close, close-knit group of friends. Socializing, drinking, right? Everyone likes a drink here now and then. Um, but also, not necessarily giving up music, that was a part of it, but giving up the dreams I had associated with music, right? That had become inter, uh, interconnected with that. So when that doubt crept in, I realized, you know what? It's time to stop. I can't pursue this. The dreams I had associated with something else might be achievable through another means. And I quit my band at the time, which is a big thing, because it's the first band where I actually started making money, right? I wasn't losing money. I wasn't playing to two people in the crowd. Right? There were at least 20 people, so you know, I was making money. Um, and off to the library I went. Right? There's that. Now, does that mean I'm individuated? Hell no. Right? Look at me. Do I look individuated to you? Right? Absolutely not. Right? For young, individuation is a lifelong process. And if anything, it's not something that you can achieve within your lifetime. So the first thing, what this talk is not about, it's not about me giving you the steps to the individuation process. How do I become individuated, right? Absolutely not. More than anything else, right, the talk is about how you might benefit, right, or the utility of using Jung's idea of individuation as a framework for your own psychological development, of understanding your life trajectory. But I also want to think critically about the concept as well. Right? And, and that's the, the, the kind of academic in me. This means asking some very difficult questions about individuation. Number one, is it an elitist project? Right? Is it all, only for the few and not for all? Right? Is it this kind of heroic, singular endeavor that many people describe it as being? Right? And third, you know, is it actually possible today? Right? Because if you look at Jung's definition of individuation, it has a particular context. Right? It's, steep, it's steeped in romantic philosophy. Right? It meant being able to, to escape to nature, right? to, to just kind of turn yourself off right? and be one with your surroundings. Is that actually really possible in our highly technological world? Right? Are we ever that disconnected? So, some important questions to ask. By the end of the talk, you'll have sufficient information at your disposal to come to your own conclusions. Hmm. That's the hope, at least. Right. Anyone know who drew this picture, by the way? Fantastic. Well done. Okay. So, sorry, there's the summary of today's lecture. Right. C.G. Young, 1875 to 1961, a Swiss psychiatrist and founder of analytical psychology. And that's it for the biographical details. Now, a few general words about the development of the personality and how this is understood in young psychology. Arguably, young psychology is a psychology of the whole life, 
right? Now, many Jungians, uh, perhaps uncritical, uninformed Jungians, would say that Freud strictly only focused on childhood, right? Poor Freud, right? Then again, he said a lot of bad things about Jung as well. I think it's a misrepresentation of Freud, but he does emphasize these stages of psychosexual development that range from birth, childhood, to adolescence, right? So there's certainly a focus in Freud uh, on that key stage. And central to this is the resolution of the Oedipus complex, right? Where the desire to, to or the, the yearning for the, the affections of the mother um, actually leads the child into conflict with the father. And what actually needs to occur, right, is that we eventually, as a son, I would need to identify with the values of my father, right? And to, to, to identify with his values because that ultimately leads to socialization. Right? If I'm able to identify with the values and the rules of my father, that means I'm able to identify and follow the rules of a larger father, i.e. society itself. Right? For Jung, however, yes, it's important to look to the past right, and how that affects the present, but equally it's important to look at right now right? and the, the recent past more than anything. What are the stages or the events that have led to a particular issue that presents itself? Right? And more than anything else, where are you going? Right? Where do you think you're going? Right? And is there a mismatch between where you think you're going and where you actually need to be? Right? And this in Jung is, well, the, the general Greek term for it is telos, teleology. Right? The sense of looking towards where you're actually heading. We can also look to Jung's distinction between the first and second half of life to see how he envisioned individuation as an entire life process. So usually when we think of individuation, we think of wholeness, right? Being complete, right? But in the first half of life, it is definitely not about being complete, being psychologically balanced, et cetera, et cetera. If anything, in the first half of life, your job is actually to be not in balance, right? To be one-sided, to work on developing what Jung would call your superior function, and to develop a strong ego that engages in the world, which then becomes the foundation or strong enough container for you to deal and engage with the unconscious in the second half of life. So for Jung, the big crucial point is 35, right? That's a bit scary for me. <laughs> and, and for my own personal reasons, I would say that 35 really isn't the, the, the mid-age point now because I need it not to be 35, to be honest, <laughs> right? <laughs> if anything, if, if we're in prolonged education, if we change careers, 35 could be 40 now, right? So if you're, you're, not, if you're at 35, you're not over the hill yet, okay? So thank goodness for that. What do you do up until the point of 35 for young? You go get an education, right? You build a career, you establish a name for yourself, right? You, you plant your foot. Uh, your flag in the world in some way, shape, or form. You settle down, right? Probably not in London, right? Because the prices are astronomical, right? You settle down, you buy a house, you settle down with a significant other, maybe you start a family, right? These are the concerns, the responsibilities of adulthood. Now, what happens when you hit 35, right? So after the 30, you know, one day after your 30, for 35th birthday, you're in trouble, right? Because things are supposed to completely shift after that day. Obviously, things are much more fluid than that. But you begin to concern yourself with larger existential questions, right? You start to realize, wow, my life is not infinite. It's finite, right? If anything, I've got 
roughly 100 years, right? 100 years to define myself and make a difference, right? So is material gain all that matters, right? Is there a life after this one? And you can see how in the pursuit of these questions, um, one may turn to more spiritual means or endeavors when, again, when looking for that potential meaning in life. So what happens in the second half of life is you're actually less concerned about what society wants from you, what it expects of you, and you're more concerned about what you want for yourself, right? So there's an internal voice, right? An inter internal yearning that you're actually speaking towards. Now, this is a, a very kind of simplistic division, first half, second half. Even with the Jungian, uh, within the Jungian world, there's, there's uh, degrees, right, or, or different models. So if you look at Eric Neumann, a very classical Jungian, um, in the, the Origins and History of Consciousness, he actually breaks up this development into three stages. Wow, a bit more complex, right, where he symbolizes the first stage as symbolized by the mother, then the father, and then the individual. And then within the life uh, lifespan, there are two crisis points, right? One when you're transitioning between the mother to the father, and then one where you're transitioning between um, the father to the individual. All right. Everyone okay so far? Okay, excellent. How do we define individuation? Well, very simply, for those of you who are more psychotherapeutically minded, it means basically making that which is unconscious conscious, right? By the way, we'll give you all these slides, right? So you don't have to, if you don't want to, you don't have to take the, the pictures, they'll be given to you. Uh, making that which is unconscious conscious and thereby expanding the personality, right? Uh, achieving greater degrees of consciousness, of self-awareness, right? In terms of psychological types, anyone familiar with young psychological types? Show of hands, okay, fantastic, excellent. You could frame individuation in terms of psychological types and really begin to see the interconnectedness of Jung's thinking, right? So you know that we have an attitude that is our kind of main go-to, either introversion or extroversion, which is then uh, complemented by one of our, well, our only superior function, right? And that could either be thinking, feeling, intuition, or sensation. Individuation actually means then being able to activate, right, or to work on your auxiliary function, your second function, your tertiary function, but most importantly, your inferior function, right, that which is the complete opposite to you. Because in the inferior function, you will begin to find the gap, right, the doorway that's been left open, i.e. the doorway to the unconscious, right? What else do we think about very generally when we think about individuation, fulfilling and realizing your innate potential, right? Very interesting idea, we'll expand on that. Now, an actual definition from Collected Works, uh, Volume 7, this is from The Relations Between the Ego and the Unconscious, the second edition, 1934. So Jung writes, individuation means becoming a single, homogeneous being, and insofar as individuality embraces our innermost last and incomparable uniqueness, it also implies becoming one's own self. We could therefore translate individuation as coming to selfhood or self-realization. Now, very interestingly, James Hillman, everyone hear of James Hillman, right? American Jungian, um, had a lot of issues actually with Jung's theory of individuation. I mean, first and foremost, he critiqued Jung uh, or, or this theory in saying that, uh, 
it's another myth that we just live by, right? And it becomes stagnant to a certain extent. And if anything, if we're looking at individuation as a structure, it actually doesn't reflect reality, where life is plural, fluid, changing all the time, right? So more than anything, it's, it's imposing a stricture and a structure rather than reflecting the complexity of life. But in his book, The Soul's Code, he gives a very interesting example, right? He calls it the acorn theory. And literally, the acorn theory is another way to, uh, to say individuation, in my estimation. So what happens when you plant an acorn and you cultivate it, right? Don't answer that because the answer is right here, right? <laughs> an acorn turns into a mighty oak tree, right? Now, like all trees, it has the qualities of treeness, right? You have some roots here, trunk, some branches leaves, foliage, etc., etc., right? But no two oak trees are ever the same, right? Every oak tree will have something that is unique about it. So extend that to this idea of individuation. There may be a pattern to what individuation looks like, but how that is experienced and lived is unique to each and every individual. No path towards individuation will ever look the same when you look at them in detail, although they may share structural and thematic similarities, right? So one thing that we actually all share in this room today is that we're all conducting an experiment, right? We are conducting an experiment on how to live a full and integral human life, right? That's the, the kind of general sense of interconnectedness, the, the general pattern, if you will, but how we live that truth, right? How we go about conducting this experiment and what we achieve, that will be different. Just as the destiny of the oak tree is already inscribed in the acorn, so the greatest version of you is already written within you, right? That's a very nice romantic thought, right? Your greatest potential is already inscribed in you. And your job in life is actually to heed that call and to actualize and realize that fullest potential, right? If you don't, well, shame on you. Right? Shame on you. Shame on you. All of you. No. <laughs> um, because not only have you robbed yourself of the greatest version of who you are, you've actually robbed society right, of your greatest contribution to its development and its proliferation. Right? Now that's actually a very interesting point and something I'm going to come back to throughout this lecture. That when we're thinking about individuation, it implies a relationship with the social, right? with society itself. And usually when we think of individuation, it's, you know, this is a, an often neglected aspect of the definition. So individuation is not about you, right? And this is from psychological types, uh, 1921 in German, 1923 in English. Individuation is a process of differentiation, having for its goal the development of the individual personality. Since the individual is not only a single entity, but also by his very existence presupposes a collective relationship, the process of individuation does not lead to isolation, but to an intenser and more universal collective solidarity. Right? Okay, so let's just kind of keep that in mind. What this relationship to the social looks like to society, we'll come back to that throughout the course of this lecture. Now, what does developing the personality involve, right? What does individuation actually look like? Well, first and foremost, it means opening yourself up to the unpredictability 
and the existence of the unconscious, right? We need to accept that we're actually not the masters in our own house. That for every conscious decision we make, we have to realize that there might be something unconscious, right? Excuse me, a deep and dynamic unconscious that shapes our decision making and actually shapes who we are. So if we're always thinking, right, that choice was mine alone, right? We're not necessarily looking at how our emotions might have factored into that particular course of action, and equally how what we did might reflect a pattern of interacting from a previous relationship, right? That we're not really aware about. So the past is still intervening in the present in some way, shape, or form, right? So acknowledging the unconscious also means that we need to be willing to heed how the unconscious wishes to speak to us, right? Of how it aims to communicate with us. This is usually through dreams, right? Fantasies, daydreams, slips of the tongue, and also synchronicities, right? So what is a synchronicity? Anyone know what a synchronicity is? Save the trouble. Yes. Yes, yes, an a-causal patterning of events, basically where an inner reality is met by a physical manifestation of that reality almost simultaneously, right? So you're almost being hit over the head twice. There's something internal, psychological within you, you're thinking about it, and lo and behold, all of a sudden, as you're thinking about it, boom, right? There's an object or some kind of transpiring events that will bring that psychological reality to the forefront even more so, right? We'll come back to synchronicities. Now, sometimes embedded within dreams are signals that one's life trajectory um, is not as it should be, or that a new possibility awaits if only the individual would recognize and heed what the unconscious may be showing him or her. Equally, through your dreams, there might be warning signs that are coming, right? That you're actually not on the correct path. And one example I love giving is uh, of, of one of Young's patients who dreams of a train, right? So he's running. This guy's running, needing to catch the train desperately, desperately. And he's already, you know, he's always being... Um, stopped in some way, shape, or form. He gets to the train station, he sees that he's missed the train, right? It's actually leaving. But he realizes that train is actually running on a huge S-curve, right? And that's actually moving quite fast. So what he realizes is that once the train hits the first corner, what's gonna happen? It's gonna topple over, right? And what this man doesn't realize is that he's the train, right? The train is actually signifying him and his life trajectory that he was climbing too fast, he wanted too much out of life, right? He was always thinking of advancing, advancing, advancing without realizing the detriment to his own psychological health and really also to his own personal limitations, right? So the dream is a warning. It's a warning that if you keep going on like this, you're gonna break down in some way, shape or form, i.e. the train is gonna fall over, right? And this is exactly what happens to this particular individual, right? So we need to be open to the ways in which our dreams might be communicating something about our life trajectory to us. And also, you know, many of us want control over our lives. Like I wanted control over my life, right? Um, go to university, finish, be a chef, eat lots of food, party, right? Whatever the dream was back then. But your best laid plans may not work out the way you think they will or as they should but it's exactly what you might need at that particular time. And that's very tough to let go of, isn't it? Right? That you think, yes, I've got it all planned out. And then you say it to yourself, I didn't expect that happening. 
and then you've got to deal with it, right? So there has to be a certain flexibility in how we live our lives, especially when we're dealing with this idea of a deep and dynamic unconscious, right? This also means accepting that rationality isn't the only way we can come to making a decision, right? I don't want to necessarily say irrationality because there's some negative connotations to irrationality. Oh, that just means stupidity, right? It's not necessarily the right way to do things. You might find it more helpful to frame it as irrationality or non-rationality, right? That our simple, small minds are just too stupid <laughs> to see the, the, the larger logic of the unconscious and how things are being patterned out, right? So we may think it's actually illogical, right? Irrational, but actually it's just completely rational, right? We're just not able to quite see it yet. Now, what else does individuation entail? Isolation. Ooh, isolation, right? Very difficult one. Jung gives us a great example in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And this in particular is his confrontation with the unconscious. And this occurs after his break with Freud and in more general terms, his break with the psychoanalytic movement. Now, up until this point, he was consumed by the concerns of the first half of life. Right? What was he doing at that time? He was establishing a name for himself right? via his contribution to the psychoanalytic movement. He was the first president of the IPA, the International Psychoanalytical Association. Uh, Freud gave him tons of admin and editorial duties right? as part of it, and he hated it. Right? And he was bad at it. Right? We need to kind of get this illusion of Jung out of our head that he was brilliant at everything. Right? Everything he touched. No, he was a horrible administrator. Right? Absolutely horrible. So, um, editorial duties, traveling, he was writing, lecturing. Right? Very busy man. All in the pursuit of his goals. Right? The goals of the first half of life. It doesn't mean that during his confrontation with the unconscious that he stopped doing these things in some way, shape, or form. He obviously continued. But when he had that drop, right? that delving into um, his unconscious, it was really a period of internal journeying, right? Of, of looking inwards. And to facilitate this, you know, what, what do you need to do? Just leave me alone, right? You need to isolate yourself, right? You have to give yourself the right environment or container in which this process actually develops. So in 2017, I was actually fortunate enough to meet Andreas Young, right? Andreas Young is the grandson um, of, of C.G. Young. And I was lucky enough to, to be at the family home before they turned the, the bottom floor uh, into a museum. And he conveyed to me the fact that whenever the grandchildren visited Young at his home, they were under strict instruction never to bother him. Right? You might see him working in the corner there. Do not approach. Right? <laughs> you do not approach until you're beckoned right? or until he's ready. And I think, if anything, that just signals the isolation, right? the incubation, the container that he was building for himself while this kind of psychological process of thinking, feeling, etc., was actually occurring in him. Right? Now, isolation for Jung also meant that he had to give himself time and permission to play. Right? And equally, give yourself time and permission to play. Um, when he was delving into the unconscious, this very difficult period, he begins to play childhood games that he hasn't played for years. Right? He begins to play with stones again. He shapes stones. He draws. He sails. He writes. Right? He explores the unconscious in written form in the black books, which are then translated, not translated, but transferred 
right, into text and image to what we now know as the Red Book, right? So it's a period of deep introspection and mourning, right? That's really important. He's mourning a loss as well, because by this point, he had lost everything, at least professionally, um, that he had worked for, right? And this was made all the more difficult because he actually took a risk to back Freud and the psychoanalytic movement, because before this, he was actually you know, a pretty well-known psychiatrist working at one of the most important psychiatric institutions in the world at that time, which is the, the Bergotsky Mental uh, Institution, right? So isolation is a necessary part of individuation. And it can be very hard for us to spend time with ourselves and with our own thoughts, right? And what Jung is saying is that one actually needs to be okay with oneself, right? You need to be able to face that within yourself, to ask difficult questions of yourself, but also to ask whether your values align with those of the collective, right? Because usually there is a mismatch between what you feel is right and what the collective feels is right. So let's give you a quick example. How many of you, show of hands, um, work for an organization, a mid-sized to a large organization? Whew. Yeah. Tough one, sorry about that. <laughs> um, you might enjoy it actually, don't know that. Um, so a typical scenario, you're at your meeting, right, with your manager and everyone is just laughing at your manager's jokes. Oh, Jim, Jessica, that's so funny, that's brilliant, tell me again. Right, all right, makes me sick a little bit, but anyways. <laughs> right, so you're at this particular meeting. Now, in the midst of all this kind of you know, jovial interaction, the manager says, this is the new plan. This is the course of action we're actually taking. And everyone is dutifully just jotting things down. Yes, 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 must do this, right? These are the action points involved. Who's gonna be doing this, delegating the work? And you might be the only one in the room who actually starts thinking for a second, hold the phone, right? What is actually going on here, right? Do I really think this is the right thing to do? Right? And a conflict actually might begin to emerge. Now, you might not raise your hand and say completely, I disagree with you, you're all idiots, we're not doing this, right? Because you have to preserve yourself to a certain extent. But you might actually begin to raise your hand and say, listen, can we just talk about this first, right? Before we decide on this particular course of action, can't we just open a space for discussion, right? And what usually happens, everyone just gives you the evil eye. Yeah, oh God, you again. Right? And you're literally scapegoated. You've become the black sheep of the group. Why? Because you were, just had what, the strength right, or, of character that you just wanted to say something to stop this herd mentality and this momentum going in a certain direction. And what happens then at your annual review? Right? They write down, you're not a team player. Right? You just didn't get that raise this year because guess what? You're not a team player. B, you're obstructive. Right? So, it's a very, very difficult and challenging situation because as much as we probably want to identify with that you know, black sheep mentality of someone who can think outside of a herd, uh, a herd or a group, we actually need relationships, right? We need meaningful connection with people. And when people actually other us um, and, and disidentify with us in some way, shape or form, that's, that's, that's really tough, right? So we need to be recognized and valued for what we actually bring to the table we then might start asking very difficult questions of ourselves. Should I just shut my mouth, 
right? Next time something comes along, so just shut my mouth. Should I go along with it and just tell me, you know, or just do, sorry, what Jim and Jessica tells me to do, right? Just be part of the team. Am I weird for questioning a particular motive or a particular course of action? And maybe that course of action is completely against your moral principles and values, right? But then do you just do it, right, to, to, to squash this feeling, if you will, so that you can maintain your position and standing in the company and ultimately to realize the goals of the first half of life, right? Which is, young, what, is young, what Young is actually telling you to do, right? So it's, it's a tough one to call. It's one that has to be assessed by a case-by-case -case basis, right? The last thing I want to hear, read on the news on Tuesday, there's been an influx of resignations in the greater London area and all... <laughs> They're all connected because they all went to the weekend university talk on Sunday, right? That's a disaster for me, right? But the point here is that isolation of stepping outside the herd mentality is part of the individuation process, right? We cannot shy away from these moments of introspection as we challenge convention and work hard to divest ourselves of a herd mentality. And that example I gave you is really implied in this next point, right? Fidelity to the law of one's own being, right? Be true to what your values are and unapologetically maintain your own personal integrity in perhaps in an industry or an environment where integrity is actually in, the, uh, in decline, right? I'll give you a great example of it. It's Jerry Maguire, right? People might think, wow, he's going to give us a really artsy foreign film to think about and go watch. No, go watch Jerry Maguire. Right? What does Jerry Maguire actually do? Does anyone remember if you've seen the film? What's that? Jerry Maguire? Yes. Yes, that's part of it. You complete me, right? Some great one-liners from Jerry Maguire. So basically what he does, he works at a really prestigious uh, agency, a sports agency, and he comes to realize that, wow, we're not really treating our athletes very well. How do we change this? We have fewer athletes, we make less money, but we build stronger relationships with our athletes, with the people we're working with, right? And everyone's applauding him, right? On the, on the persona side of it, on the face of it, and then he gets fired, right? There you go, Jerry Maguire in individuation. You never thought you'd hear it, right? Now, let me make this clear, right? Maintaining your integrity and working against the herd doesn't mean that we shouldn't be aiming to contribute to collective life in some way, shape, or form, right? And Jung really says a lot about this, avoiding individualism, right? What is individualism? Individualism is the pursuit of individual rather than common or collective goals or interests, right? You could understand it as egoism. You can understand it as a severe form of narcissism, right? That ultimately what people are seeking are their, their own self-interests, right? So it's almost a, an abnormal degree of selfishness. Jung makes a really important distinction between individualism versus individuation, right? So he writes, individualism means deliberately stressing and giving prominence to some supposed peculiarity rather than to collective considerations and obligations. But individuation means precisely the better and more complete fulfillment of the collective qualities of the human being. So, crucial to individuation then is a contribution to improving society in some way, shape, or form. 
what is an internal journey of self-discovery needs to be translated into cultivating the greater good in society. Right? So the cycle of realization goes something like this. Um, you go to therapy, right? you engage uh, in a, a Jungian pathway, if you will, of self-discovery. You benefit greatly from it. Right? And once you come out of that, you start to realize and you look around, wow, other people are suffering as well. Right? So this needs to be translated into you doing something for that larger society. And what you, may, you, know, what you may begin to realize is that actually a lot of the, the stuff I was working on, right, a lot of the things that I was actually hung up about, I'm not alone. I'm, I actually share this with, with a lot of people, that people are actually having the same hang-ups, the same issues. Now, you could be an uber Jungian, right, and you could say, wow, man, that's archetypal, right, that there's kind of this collective essentialist structuring principle binding everyone together. But equally, you could just see it as something structural to society, right? That in the process of socialization itself, we're bound together, right? Because, you know, there is something, if you will, that is contributing to this overall sense of sadness. So what do you do? Um, for post-Youngians like Andrew Samuels, this basically leads to political action, right? So you move from a concern for yourself and improving your own life to improving the life of others through rectifying, right, activism, if you will, um, those issues in society that have actually caused those disparities, right, that has actually caused that sadness, right? So you move from improving your own life to improving the life of others through political action. And that's why Andrew argues that analytical psychology and politics are actually interconnected. You can't have one without the other, and individuation ultimately is a deeply political act. So, necessary periods of isolation are offset by periods of emergence from that very isolation, right? Toynbee calls this withdrawal and return, right? But equally, we can see this in Campbell's description of the hero's journey uh, as found in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. So, every hero psychologically leaves the safety of this, right? Looks fantastic, right? And once we heed the call to adventure, right, we encounter great feats that we have to conquer, right? More journeying, battling the great beast, right? Whatever that may be, right? Defeating the beast, winning the treasure hard to, uh, hard to attain, a new dispensation, a new insight. And this is often the neglected bit, actually bringing that back to the betterment of society. Right? So you see in this little picture, this person is not alone. Right? There's actually other people involved. Okay? So an important step to emphasize in the hero's journey, and indeed the individuation process, is to actually heed the call to adventure, or stated another way, to actually make a conscious moral choice. Right? Now why is the, hero, the hero's journey so important um, to understanding aspects of young psychology? Well, it's basically this. We actually have to identify with this heroic journey or narrative to actually muster enough energy to get out the door, right? to actually start this process, to actually take this risk, right? because this actually is a risk. And look how great that looks there. Right? Sorry, I'm trying to move too much because the microphone. See that house, right? That's my house, and right there, that's not a neighbor, that's just my detached garage, right? Nobody's around me. This is a beautiful, beautiful setting, right? Why am I actually gonna go on 
this journey? Why do I identify with the hero that actually gives me the energy to pursue this risk? It's because we begin to realize that the awards and accolades we dream about in our fantasies, right, in the safety of our own home, uh, in the privacy of our own psyches, that actually isn't any better, right? It's not better than the rewards and recognition we can achieve out there in the real world, right? That's where the flip begins. That's where we begin to actually heed the call, right? So in CW17, Young writes, personality can never develop unless the individual chooses his or her own way, consciously with moral deliberation. Not only the causal motive, necessity, but conscious moral decision must lend its strength to the process of building the personality, right? The point here is that there has to be a conscious choice to pursue the course of action and that the decision itself isn't an easy one because it will inevitably entail a tension between what society deems best for you, i.e. personality number one, and what you deem is best for your own soul, personality number two, right? As we've said, it's a heavy burden to take on because it places the onus on you to choose, right? So in the immortal, immortal worlds of, of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, you have a radical responsibility to choose. Right? Think about it, a radical responsibility to choose. And, and this is not Sartre, when all accounts are settled, only you are the one responsible for the salvation of your own soul. Right? If you take one thing away from this lecture, it's that life is a, a risk. Right? You have to risk the safety afforded by the personas that we built for ourselves in order to come closer to the self, right? to realizing the self. Or if you put it another way, life is about showing up. Right? And Jung's just initial, or sorry, important contribution is that, for goodness sake, just show up. Right? Now, another element in this quote that I want to talk about, and then we're going to take a quick break, this idea of necessity. Right, that you're compelled to do something. Um, this feeling of necessity or vocation can be extremely overpowering and overwhelming. And I'm sure many of you have felt that in some way, shape or form in your own lives. So just to coincide with the break, take five minutes. Um, if you're more introverted, just perhaps think of a time where you felt compelled right, to do something that you couldn't completely explain rationally or if you're more extroverted, turn to someone close to you, beside you, and maybe just share that instance where you felt that sense of vocation and necessity. All right, All right let's take five minutes. A sense of vocation, right? Anyone ever feel that sense of vocation? Show of hands. A sense of vocation or of necessity. Feel fantastic, All right? Quite a few people. Okay, excellent. So, have you ever felt that sense um, of being compelled to follow? particular path, a career that was not of your parents choosing, right? That's an important one, right? Okay, well, <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, you know, a compulsion to travel to a specific place, but not necessarily realizing why you actually want to be there, right? That's a very interesting one, okay? Um, to go to a particular school, right? Rather than, uh, you know, perhaps a more prestigious one, right? Some of you there, right? Um, or, an important one, to leave one profession for a less lucrative one. All right, all right, fantastic. We're totally on the same page, okay? Now, <laughs> um, 
vocation is an irrational factor that calls an individual to emancipate himself or herself from the herd and from well-worn paths. And again, this doesn't mean a perpetual break with society, but actually to reimagine how we engage with society or to re-engage with society in a different way that doesn't contravene with the necessities of your soul, right? i.e. that which you need to nourish the specificity of your own individuality. The feeling, sorry, there we go, the feeling of vocation is an objective psychic experience, okay? Sometimes you feel you just can't get away from it, right? As much as you try to run, you just can't get away from it. So everywhere you turn, you're reminded of it. And during these periods, you're more likely to experience what Jung would call synchronicities, i.e., like we've said before, hints from both the inner and the outer world uh, working in unison, right? Conspiring, if you will, to bring you to a particular point or to make uh, a certain point more poignant to you, right? That a course of action needs to be taken, right? So, for example, right? Let's take the example of, of needing to, to change professions, of feeling the compulsion to change professions. And you're thinking about it. You're thinking about it for a year, maybe two years, and you actually start researching what you actually have to do to retrain, right? You know that you'll have to go to another school. It might take another two, three years. There'll be a loss of money involved, etc., etc. So at every point you begin to move forward, you kind of convince yourself to step backwards, right? Now, let's say you're, you're, it's a day, you're looking into you know, what the, the possibilities of retraining might be, and you're a bit sick of it, you walk into the town center, right, just to clear your head. And what's in the town center on that very day? A stall from a school where you could actually do that retraining, right? right? The world is hitting you on the head, like, are you dumb or something? Are you daft, <laughs> right? You know, you, there's an internal necessity of wanting to do it, there's obviously the fear, right, which is, you know, you can acknowledge that, we all experience it, but then there's that added layer of that synchronicity, right? This is something you really, really need to do. Now, let's say that you're retraining to be a social worker, right, a very noble profession, and that currently you're a corporate lawyer, which is potentially a very noble profession, right? Now, <laughs> depending, depending, all right, depending on where you're standing, you might actually say, well, actually, you know, that, that, that's, that social work position is, is fantastic. That's where we should put our value. But if you kind of just think what your knee-jerk reaction might be, right, I would probably bet and say that many would go towards or say that more value is placed on that position as a corporate lawyer. Why? You're just making more money, right? You're making the bills, man. You're making the coin. Right? You can pay for things, right? you can have luxury, etc., etc., etc. But what Jung's description of individuation reminds us and what it's telling us to focus on is not necessarily, not necessarily what others might deem is a success or what is successful, but what you deem a success to be. And as we said, it's easier said than done. We have to take into consideration um, the demands of the first half of life, yet equally, if we keep rejecting the call, right? If you keep getting hit multiple times over the head, right? With this call to adventure, then Jung is saying neurosis, sickness, psychological imbalance actually stems from not heeding the call to this particular journey, right? If you're always making the rational choice or the conventional choice, then for Jung, a symptom actually might arise, 
right? Or it could take the form of a, a series of very vivid dreams and perhaps even a sudden proneness to accidents at work, right? Something is, you know, tripping you up quite a bit. So this acts as a signal that the psyche itself is not in balance and that one is actually not following a course of action that best reflects your talents um, and the requirements of what you actually need right, to foster your own individuality. There are, however, some important dangers or inherent dangers, I would say, to thinking of your life in this way. Right? It's all not you know, roses when you're thinking of individuation and I want to kind of turn to that now. Right? So as we've said, let's just start off where we've left off this idea or feeling of vocation. Right? Now, we said it's really difficult to follow one's own truth. It can lead to alienation, to, ridic uh, to ridicule as well. And it's not an easy process. And it becomes really easy to idealize it. Right? Um, and let's not do that. Right? It is definitely difficult. It takes a lot of work. Right? A lot of sacrifice and a lot of self-reflection is actually involved. And sometimes we just can't get there because of the sacrifice involved. Right? You might have children to take care of. Right? That, that job is a steady paycheck. You just can't do that. Right? So we have to actually respect and honor that as well. Um, individuation right, means facing things about yourself that you may not want to face and opening yourself up to the challenges that others wouldn't dare confront. And these challenges might be framed in terms of, of Jung's description of the personified archetypes that you meet along the way or along the path of individuation. So that includes acknowledging shadow, right? The persona, the mask that we fall in love with and how we deal with the world. Um, and really the bridge to the archetypal self, the anima or animus, the image of alterity within, right? Now, there's also a real potential for inflation, right? Some people just love being individuated, right? They love it. They love it. And you can see it, right? They just love the, the sense of arrogance, right? The sense of pride, the sense of superiority, right? And that can actually lead people to, to, to treat people not very well, actually, right? And what's their excuse? They treat someone like garbage and say, oh, I'm getting in touch with my shadow right now, right? It's just part of the process. No, man, you're just being a jerk. Stop it. Right? So some people actually use it as an excuse. Now, Jung would say that some inflation is actually inquire, uh, re required, right? It's a necessary part of the process. But at some point, you need to disidentify with that. Because ultimately, if we keep going with it, then individuation just becomes a tagline, right? It becomes another persona, right? It becomes another mask that we put on to engage with the world, right? Something that we just put on and wear. Now, Second big point, is individuation an elitist project, right? Now, Jung does describe a natural process of individuation, right? That, you know, we enter into this world, we may not frame it as individuation, but life happens, we progress through important key markers and stages, right, in our development. But usually individuation is achieved in the context of Jungian therapy, right, of Jungian analysis. So, a caveat before I begin this, um, I'm going to give you a very exaggerated example, right? But I'm doing this to actually make a point, right? Which then forms a foundation, if you will, of further discussion and critical thinking, all right? So, how, does, how much does individuation cost? 
<laughs> right? How much does therapy actually cost? Now, a few things uh, about my numbers and estimates here. So first off, classical psychoanalysis uh, or, uh, or Jungian therapy, they will demand four to five sessions a week, but it's actually not the reality now. Okay? There are other trainings, other modalities, other forms of psychotherapy that you can take that won't demand that level of commitment, that actually realize it's just not possible. Right? So in a lot of uh, therapies, you'll see maybe two to three sessions a week right, as the, 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 the base minimum. In some therapies, it might be only once a week. Right? That's absolutely fine. There are therapies out there to kind of fit um, the hectic lifestyle that we live in. But I've just chosen four just to kind of you know, put the extreme example out there. 50 quid a session. I know of good friends and colleagues who charge more. I know of good friends and colleagues who charge less, right? Who are also therapists, by the way. I'm not a therapist. But if we look at that 50, it's just kind of a, a baseline estimate. And it's really important to note, too, that many therapists will actually offer a sliding scale of fees, right? So what that basically means is that you're, let's say, you know, not earning a great wage right now or that you're a student, right? The, what you negotiate with your therapist is that, okay, I'm at this time of life, right now 25 is the amount that we agree on, but once your financial situation begins to improve, 50 is my fee, right? So just to let you know, a caveat, there is that kind of flexibility, right? But again, I'm giving you an extreme example, right? 50 pounds per session, four sessions a week, that's already 200 pounds additional, right, that we're looking for per week, right? Yeah, potentially, potentially, or you have to have enough disposable income, right? So 200 per week times four weeks in a month roughly, that's 800 pounds per month, right? If we look to the entire year, I've given you 49 weeks, how did I come to that number? 52 weeks in a year, um, one week for Christmas, Give your therapist a break for two weeks, 49 weeks in a year, all right? 49 times 200, 9,800 pounds per year, okay? Now, some people may think it's, you know, affordable, some people less affordable, but I think the, the point here is, is that it's not an insignificant amount of money, okay? It's a considerable financial investment. I do not have 9,800 pounds in my pocket right now, although I wish I did. Okay, so we can all agree it's, it's not chump change, all right? Now, some people might counter that and say, well, actually, Kevin, um, do we put a price tag on our mental health and our individual development? And that's actually a really important point. If people want to invest that money and have that money to invest in themselves, fantastic, right? Um, I think the, the, you know, and actually, to be fair, when people begin therapy and then issues of money actually come up, you know, that resistance is actually a way, a doorway into looking at the, uh, sorry, a doorway into looking at the transference and countertransference. That money often becomes the excuse of not to continue therapy. And it actually might be hiding something else that's not about the money at all, okay? So money is psychologically very, very powerful. But again, the reason why I'm doing this, right, is just to kind of expose perhaps some of the, uh, the assumptions behind individuation that we're not actually looking at, right? Now, as one of our colleagues said here, is individuation only for those who are rich or for those with enough disposable income? Young himself grew up poor, right? From a very poor peasant family. But how and when do his fortunes change? 
Yes, when he marries into the Rausenbach family, right? The second wealthiest family in Switzerland at the time, right? How did they make their money? They made their money through agricultural machinery in the first instance, and then making very smart business decisions and investments, right? And one investment they actually made was into, not that I have one, a Swiss watch. Right? Swiss watches and timepieces. So when Young is using that precision timepiece uh, to conduct his, um, his word association tests, that's Emma's, right? That's from Emma's family, right? Now, take this one step further, right? Perhaps extreme for, for some people, but let's go there. Can we say that Young's drop into the unconscious was made possible because of Emma's family's wealth? Right? That he could do it because he could afford to do it. Right? He still made his own money. Right? He still went to see his therapies, but everything else right, is, is taking along in the background. So if I'm struggling to make ends meet, am I going to be reflecting on the ways in which the self manifested in my life this week? Right? Perhaps yes, right? for some. More likely, I would say perhaps not. I'd ideally be focusing on paying rent, right? Rent or the mortgage, buying food, taking care of my loved ones, right? So I'm not belittling the theory of individuation itself or the important role and place of Jungian analysts, right? Far from it. I have a high degree of respect um, for these ideas and for the profession in general. But I, again, I want to play devil's advocate and to expose some of the unexamined assumptions we make when we're actually discussing individuation, right? It's not just about individual superiority, right, at the personal level, that I can take it, that I can traverse this very difficult path, and that makes me elite in some way, shape, or form. It actually boils down to financial elitism as well, okay? I also want to stress, by highlighting, uh, highlighting this example, is the importance of the mundane, right, and how we actually should knock the mundane, right? You know, there's a really famous book written by a Jungian colleague uh, named John Beebe, and it's called Integrity in Depth, right? But I would also say integrity in the mundane, right? What does individuation actually look like for each and every individual, right? So those mundane responsibilities, why can't that be individuation, right? Why does individuation have to have that sense of grandeur and those heroic qualities that we usually attribute to it? Right? It's great for the ego, right? To think that we're actually doing something heroic all the time, but it's just not necessarily the case. And perhaps it's more about reframing the narrative and how we actually see it. So it's more about our ability to see the heroic in the mundane, right? And one thing I really want to hammer home today is that maybe just individuation is the everyday, right? It is the mundane, it is the ordinary, right? The process also, as I said, is highly subjective depending on the person i.e. how each person lives out those core themes or steps that may, attributed, that may be attributed to the individuation process. And really, I want to emphasize the importance of respecting and honoring that variance, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, someone suffers from agoraphobia, right? Fear of being in crowded spaces. And this person works really hard with a therapist, uh, therapist, perhaps without a therapist, right? But with family, friends, with support, one day that person is able to actually step into a market square, right? That's individuation for that person. Who are we to knock that? Who are we to say otherwise, 
right? So it's just to, to, again, to hammer home the point that what individuation looks like is going to be very different uh, for people, and we actually need to respect that, right? So it doesn't have to be that grand gesture that will leave an imprint on the history of humanity, right? Now, third, Young valorizes the individual over collectivity and submission to convention, and this is commendable, right? So it kind of goes something like this. You know, you are the maker of your destiny. By the sheer force of your personality, your tenacity, your, your will, you will be able to achieve great things. If only you put your mind to it, right? See, believe, achieve, right? And in an ideal world, that sounds absolutely fantastic. It's very romantic, right? This sounds fantastic, but it might actually ignore the important role socialization plays in shaping our personalities and identities, right? Because let's be honest, everyone, we do not begin life on the same playing field. Yeah, we do not, right? All these ideals about being able to achieve what you want, right? Be, to, to reach your potential, it assumes that we're actually all equal, and I'm sorry, we're not. We do not begin on the same footing. And this is just intersectionality, right? Of looking at gender, race, class, nationality, sexual orientation, ability, and disability, okay? So that's really important factor to, to bring in. And I think any advancement in Jung's theory of individuation needs to kind of take this into account. Um, fourth, right? Is individuation a singular heroic endeavor? Right? This is certainly part of the mythology. Right? So, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, quote-unquote, Young's autobiography, it's not. Right? But let's go with it, because there are similar lines of thinking throughout his psychology. He writes this, My life is a story of the self-realization of the unconscious. Everything in the unconscious seeks outward manifestation, and the personality, too, desires to evolve out of its unconscious conditions and to experience itself as a whole. In the end, the only events worth telling are those where the imperishable world erupted into this transitory one. That is why I speak chiefly, uh, chiefly of inner experiences. Now this is, the, this is the tagline. All other memories of travels, people, and my surroundings have paled beside these interior happenings. Right? Everything else has lost importance by comparison. Outward circumstances are no substitute for inner experience. Now, this is part of the mythology of Jung, right, as this kind of heroic guru. Scholars like Alan C. Elms, Sonusham Dasani, right, who's perhaps the, the most important Jungian historian um, alive today, they've really exposed the, that, you know, at the heart of this, even if you look at Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung had additional chapters about his relationships to other people, right, that they were meant to go in but because of various editing and pressures, these were actually taken out, right? But the point to emphasize here, if we just go strictly on this quotation, right, where we're actually only seeing other people in terms of our own individual development, I mean, that's a pretty shitty thing to do, to be honest, right? Does it do justice to the extent to which Jung's own life was shaped by other people, right? The support his wife provided in light of Jung's infidelity, right? Yeah, the camaraderie that William James and others provided after the break with Freud, the numerous friendships he shared with correspondents, followers, etc., etc. Right, and the main thrust of it is no, it doesn't. Right, it doesn't do justice to the role of relationship in that individuation process. So I think, 
And I'm not alone, right? People like Pauli Young Eisendrath, way before me, have said things like this. Um, it's more helpful and relevant to see individuation as a relational process, i.e. that we are nourished by being in relationship with other people, right? When archetypes are not dealt with, right, for Young, they're actually projected onto figures in the real world. But this doesn't mean that we disrespect those people, right? These people are not just hosts, right, or empty bodies that lead to our own individual development. So we have to respect these individuals who possess the very qualities that allow us to work through our personal psychology, right? They matter, they have their own lives, they have their own hopes, their own fears, and in turn, they will be implicating others in their own individuation journey, right? So what we actually end up with is a network of relationships, right? An intricate web of interconnectedness that is really summarized so succinctly by this image of Indra's net. Right? So if we look at this, so it's obviously a web with some dewdrops on it. Right? Let's say we're positioned here, because I like being a big raindrop. Right? I like the idea of it. Um, so I'm placed here, right? and it's a unique position, but I'm connected to the entire whole. And if I look at this, right, where I'm positioned, actually my image is reflected in all others. Right? And the, you know, the reason why I'm uniquely, or I'm unique, is because I'm positioned here, but in this larger web of interconnectedness and relationship. And I think that's really a strong image of what individuation actually is in practice, right? So, individuation is by extension not unitary. It necessitates and implicates others. Even in therapy, right, in the clinical setting, you're not alone, right? Because individuation is actually facilitated through what? through a relationship, through a relationship with another person, right? And that's the interaction between the therapist and the patient, analyst and, and Alison, however you want to call it. So having established the importance of relationships to individuation, an important and final question to ask today is whether fostering such relationships is still possible in a highly connected and digital world where integral relationality seems to be on the decline. Right? It seems we prefer to interact with our devices, that we actually interact better with our devices rather than others, right? being in relationship with others and being in relationship to the physical world around us. Now, as we've said, individuation in Jung's time meant being more attuned with nature, as he was, and as many romantics were, um, and being able to escape for periods of reflection. And this is still possible, right? I mean, we, st we still go on vacation. Right, don't we? Right, we still go hiking, camping. Yes, can I show hands? Yeah, okay. But what's the difference? Even with no reception, we'll take our devices with us, right? And even when we're doing our best to spend time with our loved ones, we are checking our emails because we know if we don't clear up some of those emails, by the time you get back, you're gonna have 300. You're gonna have to clear them up then, right? I mean, looking at my phone, I'm being persecuted. I've got three new messages. Right? And once this is done, I'm going to open this up and I'm going to look at those emails. Right? And probably scratch my head and say, I can deal with it until Tuesday. Um, so there is the, the real difference. Okay? We're never completely switched off. And it may be the case, actually, that technology itself has an important part to play in shaping how personality development is facilitated and at how it evolves into the future. Right? Maybe it's just a part of who we are now and we have to work with it rather than against it. 
And an important point to note, it's not to say that technology, social networking, or you know, virtual platforms are the enemy and that they don't actually foster greater relationship and people coming together. So if you take this event, for instance, right, a show of hands, how many people found out about this event either through social media or some other kind of virtual platform? Right? That's fantastic. Okay, a credit, right, to, uh, to Niall and his team. How many people found out about this event through a flyer that was staple gunned to a billboard, right, or a post, or just a physical flyer even? Fantastic. Niall and your team, you've done your job. All right, you've got that, you've got that staple gun, you're just out there putting on the street. Fantastic, okay? But that, that just proves the point. All right, um, that at its best, social media is very powerful, right? And it can be a platform that actually brings people together so that we can be in greater relationship and in discussion with each other, all right? But are the developments in how we communicate? So via Twitter, Snapchat, right? I don't even know what Snapchat is, but the kids tell me it's important. Okay, emojis, likes, these very kind of simplistic ways to convey emotion, all right? Are these the most conducive for cultivating the level of depth and understanding that are so central to individuation, right? To overcoming this overall sense of disenchantment and moral malaise that has been made all the more prevalent by the worst excesses of a neoliberal society, right? So in general, people are sad, right? People are sad because people don't come together and we have a collective responsibility to do something about it. The, di the digital worlds we've created are part of the problem and a reason why people aren't relating integrally to one another. Equally, however, these digital worlds can be part of the solution, but it's up to us to define the parameters of how this actually can be, right? How it's actually going to look. And this is my final thought. If one thing remains clear, Jung's theory of individuation is important now more than ever because of the very context in which we currently find ourselves. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. So I think Niall's going to come around. Another Niall, right, is going to come around now with the microphone. I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Equally happy just to go home as well. But I'm here. I'm in relationship with you right now. <laughs> Yes, sir. Um, hi. I've got a question about the two Carls. So you've talked about Carl mm -hmm. and individuation. Yeah. Does it relate to Carl Rogers and his concept of a fully functioning person? Is there a link there? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, there have been papers written on the, the links uh, between Carl Jung and Carl Rogers. So. I don't have the reference on me specifically, but if you email me and you can get my email well, via the slides uh, or Niall, I will give you the reference to the paper. And if I can find the paper, I'll send it to you. But though, I don't know enough about Carl Rogers to comment, but some work actually has been done there. Right? So there's definitely something there. Yes. Yes, sir. Right beside you. Yeah, um, you individuation being on a conscious moral choice. Mm -hmm. And behavioral science saying much of our choices are unconscious or Mm -hmm. And then we tell a narrative or story afterwards mm -hmm. about what happened. So how does that relate to making an individual moral conscious choice? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a problem that 
you know, a lot of the post-Jungians have dealt with, right? In the sense that if, if you think of the self, right? This essentialist notion of the self, this image of our, our greatest wholeness, of what we have the potential to be, that actually drives individuation, then technically speaking, there's something other than you that's actually moving the process along. But equally, in Jung's later work, you know, he puts more and more emphasis actually on the ego and the relationship of the ego to the self, in the sense that, you know, even if there is this kind of teleological pull towards your self-development, there is also that kind of sheer act of will to decide, right? And as we go further into Jung's thinking, he's putting more and more emphasis actually on the ego and the role of consciousness in the individuation process, right? Because ultimately, if we're thinking of the, the, the self and individuation, even the, the term the self doesn't encapsulate what that totality actually is. That in itself is only an image, right? And perhaps in later Jungian thinking, it's more actually... Um, it's more to the point to see this as an evolving process rather than being driven by some archetype, if you will, right? And there's a lot been, uh, has been written about you know, more constructivist approaches to understanding Jung's theory of individuation. So I would actually recommend in the Handbook of Jungian Psychology, there are some good chapters um, by Warren Coleman, who's a very respected SAP analyst, um, and also Murray Stein, Right, very respected and, and elder Jungian analyst who, who, who spends a lot of his time, well, splits his time between the US and, and Zurich as well. Wow, lots of questions. There's quite a few here in this middle bit, Niall. Can we hit those and then we'll go back and then forward again? Um, thank you, well, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you for that. You should be joining the MA, actually, is, is, my first, uh, is my first gut reaction. So the question was, is there actually any statistical evidence to show that what happens in Jungian therapy is actually more effective than other modalities that have been accepted, let's say, by the NHS more widely, like CBT? There was one article published by Hessler, R-E-O-S-L-E-R, right, looking at the efficacy of Jungian therapy and actually how it might save money in the long run. So again, if you email me, right, I will send the paper directly to you because I have it, right? So there is evidence, there is a growing body of evidence. It's still scant, right, um, but it, it's certainly there, um, especially as people begin more and more to realize, you know, some of the cracks within CBT because it's been with us actually for a while now, right? And although people you know, are able to adapt for a certain period, people come back for more sessions. And if people come back for more sessions, then technically it's not as cost effective. Mm -hmm. Right? So we have quite a few in that middle position. So one colleague there, and then I do want to go to the back and then we'll move back to the front. Yes, this gentleman and then the, the lady just behind. Yes, you, yes. Mm -hmm. Could you comment a little bit more about um, how uh, 
how, um, you know, how isolation, that process, that second point you had in the first slide. Sure, sure. How isolation has been achieved within that Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. I mean, there are periods where we just need to recharge, don't we? Right, and symbolically for the Jungians. Oh, sorry, the, the question was, um, you know, I, I've kind of emphasized individuation as being a, a network of relationships. So how does that, how do we then kind of um, integrate this emphasis on isolation as well? Because there seems to be potentially a, a contradiction there. Um, and I would say, you know, the, again, it's that kind of hero's journey of withdrawal and return, that there are periods where we need that isolation, right? Where, you know, literally nothing is better than mother right, that something difficult has happened in your life, what, where do we usually retreat? Either to our parents' home or someone who symbolizes mother, right, where we can be cared for, someone cooks for us, you know, someone washes all our dishes, sounds great, right? And, and that's the, the, the period of recharging, of listening to having a sympathetic ear, right? But there comes a point where we can't stay there, and, and, and that's the rub. So if we look at that, you know, that um, hero's journey again, that's symbolized by the temptation of, of the beast and being defeated by that beast, right? That it's so comfortable there, right? But it's not um, a oneness that is born through difficulty. It's a myopic oneness, right? It's, it's overall encompassing oneness. So even though those periods are really important, we have to actually take the risk of going out in the world again. And that means actually relating to people again, right? So I think there is a place that you know, there are periods where we need to be by ourselves and we have to find moments to actually be by ourselves. But equally, we can't completely shut the world out either. And it's that kind of duality in Jung of the opposites, of trying to find a balance between opposites as well. Right, thank you. Yes. So there's two parts of the question. So, so the the first one again. Can you remind me what the first one was? Yeah. 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 That's a very interesting question, actually. I mean, yeah, it would be horrendous if everyone was individuated, right? Because nothing would get done. Absolutely nothing would get done. Because most of them are intuitives, anyways. Um, uh, I think that's really important. I think there's a, a place for everyone, right, in society, regardless of, again, how lofty those ambitions might be. Um, and I think, by extension, then, I would probably agree with what you're saying in the sense that not everyone can be individuated, but individuation can look so different for so many people. And, you know, in terms of the herd mentality, I think intrinsic in Jung and really Freud as well, that there is a very negative estimation of the group and of group life. And you know, obviously even during the time of Le Bon, people were disagreeing with him. So this idea um, of herd mentality, of group psychology, you know, yeah, you're right. There probably has to be some rethinking about that um, and perhaps in, in light of social psychology as well. Um, would I say that you know, some herd mentality is necessary? That's a, an interesting way to put 
you know, Rousseau social contract, right? That we have to kind of come together uh, to a certain extent to, to live and have collective values together. So it's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I have a, an answer, but just to say, to, to emphasize again, that, you know, group life is actually really important to Young, and it's an aspect that gets hidden or lost in this, you know, constant emphasis on, on individuality, right? Of, of emancipating oneself from the herd, right? But what Young really wants to avoid is just blindly following for the sake of blindly following, right? I mean, if you're, you're conscious and you reflect and you feel that, you know, the interests of the group are, it's the best way forward, then by all means, put your eggs in that basket and go forward. But it's th that kind of lack of reflection that I think Young is really, you know, has a, a real issue with, right? And your second question? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's. I think that's a really good point. Um, so the the question is, um, is individuation only possible in a, a global network society where certain professions actually exist? Right. So the answer to that is it's a very interesting question. Um, when Jung discusses individuation, he actually turns to religion and religious development quite a bit, right? And he looks to um, the, the, the deeds, the, the lives of religious leaders as a framework for individuation. So I think the answer to that is... Yeah. I'm just wondering if you could uh, perhaps unpack that a little bit and, and just say, is there a way to embrace that concept without relying on the supernatural or you know, signs from the universe or things that are sort of vague? Like mm -hmm, that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, how interesting. Um, it's another talk in of itself. So, you know, the, the question is just to elaborate on this idea of synchronicity and whether it necessarily entails the, the realm of the esoteric. Because I think if it entails the realm of the esoteric and what you're saying there is that, you know, people will just drop off because you don't have that kind of scientific validity. Um, and initially, Jung was actually, you know, at pains to link it um, to, to, to Ryan's parapsychological experiments, right? That, you know, if someone is conducting an experiment, I'm looking, uh, there's a barrier between, let's say, yourself and me, all right? We're, you're looking at certain cards, you pull them out, right? And my job is to guess what shape it actually is, you know, based on a, a certain number of shapes that are actually in the deck. And they found that initially, when I actually started the experiment, I was more engaged and excited about it. I, I wanted to see that connection. My hit total was actually quite significant. But as I got bored and I moved along, right, further, further into experiment, then the actual correlation became less and less. And the whole point of it is that, you know, 
you're more prone to seeing synchronicities once you understand what a synchronicity actually is. And part of what Young was saying was, you know, as well, is that if you kind of look at just statistical averages, what's really important are the anomalies, right? It's not the things that actually prove the theory. It's the things that actually challenge it. And these are the things that we should be looking at. But also, when you look at those synchronicities, his argument was that they're still above the statistical level of chance, right? So they actually can't be completely ignored. And I think through synchronicity, and you know, my colleague Roderick Main argues this, is that you know, he was trying to redress and, and redefine what science actually is and what's permissible within the, the bounds of, of science. Um, saying a bit more about synchronicity, it's a really interesting subject. Three main examples of a synchronicity. First example, literally the meeting of the inner and the outer, right? And he gives us this classic example, uh, the scarab patient, right? And her real name is, because someone wrote a paper about it, it'll come back to me, right? But, whoops, but anyways, there's a patient, she comes to Young, very intellectual, very smart, smarter than him in many ways, right? But every time they're in therapy, she makes an excuse to draw back. And for Young, the only thing that will break her resistance is an irrational factor, right? I.e. something that will shake her out of this kind of adherence to rationality. So she's conveying a dream to Young in therapy about a jewel being given to her, right? A scarab, right? It's a scarab. And as she was telling this dream, Young tells us that a scarab flies into the room, right? A rose shafer, a beetle, the closest thing to a scarab in those parts of Switzerland. So Young, right, grabs the beetle, right? Great eye-hand coordination, grabs the beetle, gives it to her and says, here's your scarab, right? Now, if you look at that symbolically, what that means is that this person needed a rebirth, right? She needed that irrational factor um, in order to progress, which is symbolized by that scarab. So the first definition of a synchronicity is literally the meeting of the inner and the outer, right? The second definition of synchronicity is the, uh, the meeting of the inner and outer I would say across geogra geographical boundaries, right? And that the meeting of inner and outer is still relatively simultaneous, right? So Jung gives the example of Swedenborg, right? Who's at a party, right? For away, far away from his hometown. Um, and he sees these ragers, uh, sorry, these fires raging in Stockholm, right? And as he's at this party, he enters this trance state and he's able to relay what's happening. And as news of what's happening comes in, he can see that he was basically on the ball. Right? So it's a meeting in inner and outer, but this time there's the issue of geographical space, right? that our distinction of space actually collapses. Right? The last one is basically precognition, right? that you, know, you, you dream of something and literally it becomes true. Right? So those are the three major definitions of synchronicity. There's four and five as well, right? but I won't get into four and five today, um, and we'll have to leave it for another time. Thank you. Yes, our colleague there. Um, hi, thank you for the talk. It was really fascinating. Um, just a question regarding um, individuation and mm -hmm. Jung's take in regards to consciousness. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a conflict with individuation and Jung's take mm -hmm. on you know, going out into the world and making your own conscious choices versus the neuroscience today that might suggest that you don't have free will or that there's mm -hmm. predetermined actions at play? What, what would you, how would you argue as a post Jungian? Um, in terms of making the argument for a Jungian take on that versus a very, very hard empiricist take on that. 
Yeah, yeah. You should join the MA as well, is my response. Um, so the, the question was, how do we correlate or, or, or take into account you know, the, this kind of classical theory of individuation that I put forward and more complex developments in the field of neuroscience? Right? And my response to that is people are doing it, but I'm definitely not one of them. Right? So um, people like uh, Greg Hoganson, um, several other colleagues, Joe Cambray, um, Gene Knox, all, all, of, you know, all these individuals are concentrating on this specific area right, of looking at analytical psychology and neuroscience. I'm sure you've heard of Mark Solms as well. Right, more from the, the perspective of psychoanalysis. So if you send me an email, I will filter some papers your, your way. That's a great answer, isn't it? Right? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I know of the papers that know, and I will forward them to you. Yes, our colleagues here. Yes. Social media, that's interesting. So the, the question from my colleague here um, is about the role of inflation in, in the individuation process and how we might kind of connect that with social media. Um, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, inflation actually is necessary, right? Because you're working towards something. You have to be inflated. You have to have an ideal image of what you actually want to become. So, you know, from my personal example, that professor who, who recognized me, he became my image of the self, right? Uh, literally a father figure. And I had to, to, to have that initially, right? To, to, to want what he had, right? Uh, in many ways, to, in order to propel myself to get to that point. So there is that sense of inflation that I actually, I can do this. You know, I can be um, taking his position, literally, like killing the father, right? Very Oedipal, actually. Um, so there's that role of inflation. Where do we see inflation today? I mean, my knee-jerk reaction is actually to look at celebrity culture, right? And not necessarily what we take away from it, but our fascination with celebrity culture because we look at these individuals as symbols of the self, right? Of things that we actually attain to. Um, can that propel people to, to achieve what they achieve? I, I would say yes to a certain extent. Again, my reference point would be music, right? That there are many instances where a new and upcoming band will say, I was in the mosh pit when Tool were playing, right? At Somersault Festival. And that propelled me to do what I'm doing today. So I think there, there, there can be real, um, real positives to that inflation, but it has to, again, it has to be a very controlled, realistic inflation. That there is that moment of, of you know, participation mystique, of connection right, if you will, but equally, there has to be a going backwards and say, listen, I'm not Danny Carey, I never will be, God bless me, you don't know that reference, Danny Carey's the drummer from Tool, by the way, right, untouchable, but anyways, right, yes, next colleague. Mm -hmm. And he also had a lot to say about individuation. He just mm -hmm. called it psychosynthesis. 
So the, the question is, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of connections between some of the thinkers that we're looking at today and, and the founder of psychosynthesis, you said. What was his name again? Yeah. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, a good point to, to bring up because, you know, a lot of the, the historical work within our field is actually exposing the extent to which Jung may have taken ideas from other people, right? Or that there was a larger milieu and Jung and Freud and whoever else were just kind of nodal points in this larger context of development and narration, if you will. Um, I don't know of any papers that are written on the, the topic specifically, but you know, I would certainly welcome those developments and that kind of research, um, just because, again, for whatever reason, providence, et cetera, these founding fathers have this mythology behind them that have propelled them to this status. And a large part of the academic work is to kind of knock that down right, to, to say actually there were other people involved. Um, a, a large movement within the Jungian circles right now is to actually show the extent to which the women of analytical psychology contributed and developed Jung's thinking, and that literally he took ideas from other people without giving them due, um, you know, due respect, right? Yeah, my question was yeah. if Jung didn't give enough respect to mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, again, you know, it, it's not my area of expertise, but, you know, knowing that uh, there are people who are invested in this and, and can research it further, I think the important role then is to, you know, for people like yourselves to, w with that expertise, to put it out there in the world and, and to shed further light on it. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the problem of individuation. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier that you're not a team player as one, and yeah. B, you said you're obstructed. Yeah. Uh, this is very personal to me because sure. I face the same sort of problem. Yeah. And I wanted to take a, an example from history, a famous example from history, Socrates, who mm -hmm. fitted into that particular problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure, that he was willing to die for it, basically. Yeah. Yeah, he could have done something based on mm -hmm. research and what you've been talking about, uh, and do the same sort of thing, but in a way that he could integrate better with society and be more acceptable. So, is the the question the the kind of um, you know the, this thought experiment of how Socrates himself? could have avoided his fate and the kind of principles that he stood for, right? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think people decide to do what they do, right? I mean, he, he obviously chose to, to drink that poison to make a point, right? Because it was the center of his, his philosophy, actually. Again, I'm not the expert. I do remember reading, you know, quite a bit during, during my BA. Um, and sometimes that kind of integrity and sacrifice is exactly what's called for. It's a very extreme example, but the contexts are different as well, right? Um, 
what perhaps was the only way to make a significant point and to make a stand back then may look somewhat different than, than what it is now, right? It's hard to say how Socrates might have, you know, um, reworked that fate, if you will, to, to equally get his message out there without losing his life. I'm just, just thinking what he might have done if he mm -hmm. had a conversation with Jung, for instance. Right. And then did it. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I'm not sure what Jung would have said. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Hi. Yes. Uh, No, it's a great question, great comment. So basically, you know, our colleague is exposing the fact that it's a very Eurocentric idea, a very Western idea of individuation. Because if, well, I don't know if it wouldn't work. It would have to take a different form, right? But I, you know, I'm not well versed in in what those other pressures might be. So you know, from my own experience, you know, growing up um, in a Chinese family, you're right. There is more of an emphasis on the group life right, of, of the good of the collective rather than the individual. And it was that tension of obviously, you know, being a Westerner, Canadian, um, growing up in, in a Canadian context, but then also growing up a Chinese family that, that threw up a host of, of issues. Um, my response to the question, again, is that, you know, Jung took a lot of inspiration from Eastern thought, right? Whether or not he did that responsibly is, is definitely up for question. So if you read people like J.J. Clark, um, he'll look at Jung's Orientalism, right, the Eurocentric nature and really the racist nature of his thinking in many ways, shape or forms. But it doesn't mean that we can throw, we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, right, that it can't be developed in certain contexts. We have colleagues working around the world, right, with Jungian ideas. And the very fact that Jung was open um, to Eastern thinking and, and philosophy meant that there was, at least in his mind, some form of connection. Whether or not he worked it out fully, Right, it's probably the, you know, no is the answer, but it really is up to others then to kind of work with the ideas, to extend the ideas. The, the concern is, and I share your concern, is that really does it just kind of lead to another form of appropriation, right? That's a, it's a never, you know, another civilizing mission, if you will, of imposing Western ideas on, on the East and other cultures. And again, that's something that needs to be taken into account of. I know from, you know, within psychoanalysis, a lot of work has been done to, to question whether or not the, the Oedipus complex is universal, right? And looking how, in, in different contexts, there might be a, an inkling or an idea that's the same, but the exact c configuration is actually different. Right? So I think it's important just to, to kind of hold that tension and to take into consideration all the, the, the good things that you've noted about context. Because I think embedded in Jung's ideas themselves is an appreciation for context and history. When we look at his distinction between the archetype and the archetypal image, right? the archetype in and of itself is unknowable. We only begin to know one aspect of the archetype through its manifestations in culture as archetypal images. Right? Thank you. Thanks, hi. Thank you very much for the talk. It really mm -hmm. resonated. Mm -hmm. Now, my question mm -hmm. is, 
is Jung's concept of individuation the same as Maslow's concept of self-actualization, or mm -hmm. if there are differences, what are they? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, a lot of, sorry, so the, the question is, there seems to be many similarities potentially between Jung's idea of individuation and Maslow's idea of self-actualization, right? And I know, again, especially within the psychology of religion, people have compared those ideas. Um, I can give you the references, right? But I, for one, am not the person to, to answer it. But I think, you know, if anything, it seems that there is this kind of general concern with framing individual development. I mean, we can think of Erickson as well, right? And, and, and seven stages of, of development. So it seems people want to frame it, that they're seeing something. It's just kind of, they might be doing it in very different ways or they're, you know, very similar ways, but with small nuances here and there, right? And maybe it's worth quibbling about, maybe it's not worth quibbling about, but I think that's, that's something embedded in the history of psychoanalysis itself. It's because the, the gains are so small, right, that, that we, we, we keep quibbling and fighting about it. So, you know, for instance, comparisons between Young and Klein, they're, they're there for the taking, right? But it's very hard to find a very good comparison and a robust one between those two thinkers. So I know of, you know, a few book chapters in the psychology of religion that will discuss Young and Maslow together. And again, if you email me, I can give you the reference to that. I don't think I have a scan of that one, though. Okay, yeah, thank you. Yes. So there was a question at the end mm -hmm. around um, digital age and mm. its effects on individuation. Yeah. Um, one opinion might be that actually social media companies and consumer companies mm -hmm. that preceded them are pretty active in advancing their understanding of perpetuation and individuation. Mm -hmm. By this thing, you become more individual, you, you mm -hmm. have a, a micro substitute for the, uh, mm -hmm. the hero's call, as you used to be calling it. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, my opinion would be that we shouldn't let those people be the most advanced and active sure. institutions. If you also agree with that, what would your thought be on which institutions and whose responsibility is it to promote and advance the pursuit of individuation? Yeah, so the, the question really is about individuation in, in the kind of more digital age and who actually the responsibility falls on to kind of promote a more integral idea of individuation that's actually out there, right? Is, is that about right? Yeah, because yeah. it's kind of a bit more exploitative Sure. Sure. I think if anything, it begins with us and how we interact with it, because there is a lot of, you know, a lot of change that can happen, a lot of power in social media itself. But, you know, if we look at how we engage with it, even on, on the level of um, social networking, where I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention any companies, but when we put up our profile pictures, what, what picture do we put up? The best one of ourselves that we can find. Right? Usually a selfie kind of like this, right? You're not going to put up a picture where you've got, I don't know, you just rolled out of bed, right? I crusty still in the middle there, you know, looking like that. So there's already there a level of persona, the way that we want the world to perceive us rather than who we really are. And again, it's going down to individuals and groups about how they actually harness that power about bringing people together. Um, are companies... Can companies be responsible for putting something a bit more integral out there about individual development? I think we can look at certain softwares and, and really development of technology and how it impinges on psychotherapy in general. That for me would be a starting point. So, you know, for those who engage in therapy, you know that if you've built a rapport with your therapist, your therapist moves away, but you still want to continue with that therapist. There is the possibility of doing it via Skype, 
right? Doing it via, sure, right? Doing it via, sure, right? You know, doing it via Zoom, etc. So that connection can be there. And then there's actually, you know, digital therapy where you actually interact with avatars um, to, you know, to propel that development. I'm a bit skeptical of that, but I'm, I'm definitely interested, right, in how that technology actually develops and how that, uh, that integral psychotherapeutic relationship might be built, right? So I think it's a small starting point. It's not the grand, the, the bigger starting point, the important question you're asking, but if it's going to start somewhere, I think it starts there actually, right, of looking at how the digital age is changing what the therapeutic relationship actually looks like, right? Because there I think we are concerned with individual growth, mental health, yeah. and individual integrity. How we move on to the larger companies, pff, yeah, no idea, no idea. Hi, we started with the, the picture of the, the man, and mm -hmm. the idea of the crossroads, and how sometimes you have to make choices, and mm -hmm. you might go left and you might go right. Yeah. And I know that Jung was inspired also by Nietzsche and his mm -hmm. phrase, uh, become what you are. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll bring you to your example. Mm -hmm. How do you know what, that you are becoming what you are rather than what you are not? Because when yeah. you make the choice and move forward, there is a part of yourself that you have to sort of abandon and leave behind. Yeah. For example, you left music behind. Yeah, yeah. And you became an academic. Mm -hmm. But how do you know that what you really are is the academic, the academia, and not the musician? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. how do you how do you recognize how to make the choice in the process of the individuation and that you are uh, like moving forward rather than yeah. uh, taking a, a wrong step in the sure. like, wrong direction following your ego rather than the, sure. the real unconscious? I don't right. know if I put it in... Yeah, yeah, crystal clear, crystal clear. So the question from our colleague is, how do you know that you following your own path, right, is actually the right path and the best path, right? <laughs> that, you know, if anything, um, you could be following another delusion, right? And I think that's really important. My kind of cheeky knee-jerk reaction was to say I'm a better academic than I was a musician. And that's perhaps a good sign, right, that it was the right move. And usually, you know, Jung describes this process when you begin to take up another form of work, another vocation, it's like you become second, it's second nature. You just go with it, right? And the years that you may have lost right, to developing it, you just gain it back instantly, right? It's like that kid in the arcade who plays Street Fighter, right? You've been practicing for three years, right? And this 13-year-old starts whipping your butt with the worst character possible, right? Then you know you're not on the, the right path, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think it's about being realistic with yourself as well. I know that it's very easy to fall in love with the fantasy of yourself, right, of a fantasy of what you actually, you know, can become. But I think you have to be realistic about your own talents yeah. and your own goals. And individuation is actually about those, those difficult questions, yeah. right? You know, am I really going to achieve this if I'm just limited in terms of my own skill, right? So I think, you know, realizing the self and individuation is realizing what's achievable for you and taking into account and respecting, honoring your own limitations as well. Sure, yes. All right, no, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.